This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. Um, sponsored by, I'm supposed to say this now, Four Horsemen Publications. There we go. Um, I'm your host, Erica Lance. With me again, I'm so epically excited, is my co-host. Hey, Mark Muncy from Erie, Florida. How y'all doing? Yes. <laughs> and today we have Mr. So many awards after his name, I can't list them all. We'll run out of podcast time. Oh, going back. Yay! Okay. So, first we always talk about what we're drinking and i have i actually realized i should probably be using my swag cups i have a drinking with authors cup i think i owe you one mark (laughs) and it has um gin and uh fever something fever something uh fever tree uh cucumber lime um uh tonic water in it god i can't even say all the words i've been drinking too much already mark what are you drinking for us uh, since I'm still on my epilepsy medication, I am uh, in, in, I am imbibing a wonderful coffee, so I will stay awake tonight. It is called Tribal Screams from Coffee Shop of Horrors, and it is inspired by our lovely guest tonight's uh, collection. So, oh yes, my goodness! Oh. Okay, so <laughs> what is that flavor, Mark? And then we'll get to the other drinks. It cause... is a chestnut roast, and it is delish. So, oh my gosh! Yeah. Coffee Shop of Horrors has amazing coffee. I love their yeah. coffee. I am I am okay. a I am fond of since this is an adult podcast we can say this I am fond of their morning brew called uh, Morning BJ, uh, which has Beetlejuice on it, and it's a banana <laughs> nut bread, so nut bread it's hysterical and it tastes delicious. So my they have an amaretto one that I love mixing with amaretto. Yep. Since we're in drinking mode, I, the amaretto coffee mixed with a little cream and some amaretto is pretty amazing. Oh. There we go. Light just went off. Okay. Al, what are you drinking? I am drinking Shipyard Pumpkinhead Ale, which I absolutely love because it's very pumpkin-y. It's not too spicy. And to me, it's like Halloween in a bottle. This comes out about this time of year. So I end up buying like six cases and hiding it in my bedroom next to my bed so nobody can get to it but me. That's my <laughs> good stuff there. <laughs> Gives whole new dimension to keep it secret, keep it safe, huh? <laughs> I'll, I'll drink it year round, but you only can buy it at this time. And you used to be able to get it on sale, but everybody found out how good it is. Now you, there's no sales and you got to grab it when you see it because you won't have it for long. I think that's like the peach crown that came out. Everybody's going crazy over the peach crown that came out. You can't find it anywhere. Okay. Damn, okay. yuppies. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I love that. Okay, Owl, for those fans out there that may not know who you are, will you talk a little bit about what you write? Okay, um, let's see. I've been writing for about 30 years. I started out with martial arts articles and quickly switched to fiction. I do novels, children's books, short stories, comic books, screenplays. Uh, I'm basically a prostitute of the written word, anything that pays money. Uh, I specialize in horror, fantasy, and I've done some science fiction. I've also ghostwritten for celebrities under their name. So, yeah, anything that makes a buck, I'll do. But I I like the scary stuff the best. 
That is awesome. As a horror writer, we're all horror writers on this podcast. Part of the reason I asked Mark to do this with me, too, because we're all horror writers. And we get to talk about scary shit on this podcast. Yay! Um, So when did you start writing? Uh, Mid-80s, actually. I, I used to do it in high school for fun and was selling kids stories for their English classes. But I put everything aside until, and I went in the military. And I got out of the military and opened up a bar in Georgia, just south of Macon, Georgia. And one night we were watching an interview with Stephen King on, on the TV. My wife turned to me and said, why can't you be like him? I said, it's so stupid. Now, she had no idea I used to write. So I was like, the, I had the whole bruised male ego thing. So I sat down the next day and started writing. And I, I, like I said, I started out, I was big into martial arts then, so I started doing like for black belt and Taekwondo times, but I switched to fiction. And about 10 years after being called stupid by my wife, I was up against King for best novel of the year for the Stoker Awards. Of course, the wife still calls me stupid, but if it wasn't for that challenge, I would have never started writing. Wow. Well, I, that's good motivation, question mark, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure how to take that, but I, that's awesome. So what well, was your... every, every successful man has a woman behind him telling him to get to work and quit being so lazy. That's how it works. And Mark, I'm sure Mark's got his driving person behind him hitting him over the head to get oh, him to yeah. work sometimes. I've got I've got a couple behind me. I've got my wife and then my <laughs> uh, my uh, co-writing partner Elizabeth Abbott. They they are the the driving force behind all of it. Uh, but uh, Al, you got I got to say, Nancy. I mean, the the other plus with Nancy is that uh, your lovely wife is that you get all the best cooking I've ever seen. Uh, you post that way too much, by the way. Just saying. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, she does this. She'll cook and make these wonderful baked goods, leave them in the house, and she'll go take off to go to work and say, don't eat those. I'm like, oh, you know, quit leaving them in the fridge. She's like, you don't have to eat this. I didn't make it for you. I'm like, it's sitting near 20 feet from my office. Yes, I'm going to eat it. But yeah, she <laughs> takes care of me. That should be a, a rule. If you leave it where I can see it, it's mine. That's it. It is a rule. Okay, so what was your first fiction piece that you published? Oh, it was, well, I did a fiction piece for a martial arts magazine, but it was so small, and I did it under a pseudonym. I, I don't even recall what magazine. I, it was probably my first published horror fiction piece was for a, a, an anthology called uh, Confederacy of the Dead. I did a Civil War zombie type story set in Florida because I wanted to incorporate the stuff about Florida because Florida's got all these weird things, Mark can tell you. And I had the, uh, Chief James Billy tell me the legend of how uh, uh, Kiss Kissimmee, Kissimmee got its name because everybody who mispronounces it will say Kissimmee and everybody laughs at him, all the tourists. But he said that's how it's actually pronounced. He said during the Second Seminole War, uh, the, the Seminole Indians will always travel with their women, and they told the women, go ahead and go out and down to the river, make dinner. We're going to go kick these white guys' asses and come back. We'll see you later. Well, they lost. And the soldiers knew that the Indians always travel with the women, and they wanted to find out where the women were. And they found out. And they attacked the encampment with the women, and one woman stood up, and the Seminoles did not have a word for rape me. And she said, kiss me, kiss me. In other words, do what you want with me and let the others go. And they did. They raped and murdered her. And the other women got away. Well, she was honored by the Seminole tribe. They renamed her Kissimmee Billy. And she's buried down here in South Florida. So I had the chief of the Seminoles telling me the story. And I was like, wow, you mean where Disney is, where it takes all the money from the tourists, is actually the land of rape me. So I wanted to incorporate it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I shouldn't be laughing. but It's <laughs> just... true, though. Yeah. The it's ironic, place you know? on earth. 
is one of the darkest the town, places. Town of Rapey, you know, that's where yeah. Disney is. But I used just a bit of that because I had learned that the, it was, the, a lot of times the Indians, they would skin the Indians and make boot leather out of them and stuff. And all these horrific things that took place back in those days. And that was inspiration for a story. And I called the story Spoils of War. And I, uh, the main character was a black slave and how he's being treated by this Confederate captain. Oh, wow. So, you know, me and Mark have talked about this a little bit of how much, um, as I go left already during this podcast, how much um, truth is so much t- more terrifying than fiction. Like you can invent so much stuff, but then you hear a true story behind an event that occurred and it's like 10 times more terrifying than whatever you wrote on the paper. Exactly. And Florida's got such weird stuff that it, it, I'll never run out of story ideas. And I, I always consider, I've considered myself more of a storyteller than a writer. And uh, the traditional storytellers of the native people, that's how they taught the kids. They would uh, tell a story and they would weave the teachings in the story. So I kind of do that with what I write. I try to put a little bit of history in there, a lot of truth in the stories, because then they're, you know, you're getting educated whether you like it or not, because a lot of people will not pick up a nonfiction book. But if you do it as a story, they're learning and they don't realize they're learning, which is why my books are being used at the Orange County Correctional Facility for a youthful offender program. Now, oh, these wow. guys, didn't even, they didn't even know I was local. And I got this letter from them. And I thought first thing I thought was, what have my sons done now? Because, you know, it's from <laughs> I opened it up and I, and I opened it up. And here's pictures of these convicts, these 15 year old youthful offenders. And they're holding my books. You're holding Crota. So I called him up. I said, you guys are using my books in a reading program. And they're like, yeah. I said, you know, I kill people in horrible ways. They go, yeah, but you do the whole respect your elders, respect the earth. He said, these kids are getting something out of it. So they were learning the way I had intended to teach with the stories. And it was an eight-week course. And they read my book and they wrote a report. And during that time, if they kept their nose clean and stuck with the course, they were rewarded by their families coming into jail with a home-cooked meal. I said, wow, you got some kid who's in jail for being a dumbass, basically, maybe in jail for the rest of his life and get rewarded by his family coming in and having that moment to share a meal with him. I said, just for reading my garbage. And I loved it. I went down there several times and talked to the to the inmates who are in the program, and they were some of the sharpest kids I've ever met. They just screwed up. Oh, wow. Well, that's that's awesome that that happens. So when did the, was that book one of the turning points for you? With, uh, with the first one? Yeah. Crota, yeah, it, it was, it was, it, you know, it was, I, I, when it first came out, I wouldn't even look at the papers. I was scared of the reviews. I thought it was going to be so awful because, you know, I didn't, I'm, to this day, I don't think I'm a very good writer, but the reviews are all positive. In fact, uh, I've had people approach me at a powwow thinking that the Crota is a real Native American legend. And I had them swear that they saw it walking around in the Ocala National Forest. And I, I, they said, this, this is a real Indian legend. It's a real creature. And it broke my heart to tell them, no, I made it up. I said, but there are other things out there. There are other things, and they're probably much, much worse. And, and uh, the sad I thing is, so many people think it's a real legend that uh, one of the biggest gaming companies in the world ripped off Crota and come out with a game extension called the Crota's Lair about an underground creature living in uh, an ancient ruins of a civilization on the moon. Where my book is about a creature underground in, in civilization here at old ruins. So, and I'm sure they 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 stole it not thinking they were stealing from an author, thinking they're using a tribal legend when it is not. And Crota is definitely, I would say, one of my top ten all-time favorite books. It is uh, amazing. For those that haven't read it, 
that is as high a praise as I can give. I would, I, that, that's incredible. And that got me started. I think, uh, I met you at a MegaCon many years ago and, uh, and that was the, the one book I picked up and, and I, I'm so happy I did because now, now we've got a, you know, kind of a friendship and, uh, you know, and all this and, and I've just followed his trail and I've bought so many of his books since. And, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm like sitting here with stacks of them next Ooh, to me. Okay. You I'm know, just so. going to point out that Mark Muncy just fanboyed on this podcast. That's oh, what yeah. <laughs> Mark Muncy said, went full 100% fanboy. Yep. I, 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 there are a few I will do that for, but Al is definitely one of them. He, he is one of the few authors that seriously can creep me out one moment and then make me laugh hysterically on the next page. And then the very next page, the, the plot thickens. And it's like, oh my gosh, where is this going? And that's, not many authors can do that. And that's, you know, so I'm, I'm honored that we have him here. Thank well, you, now Mark. me too. Like now, now this is even more special than this just occurred. <laughs> Maybe it's just the coffee. Oh, and Mark's books in his career and reading his books for inspiration for my stories. Because he's always giving me these little tidbits of things in Florida that I didn't know were down here. Because, you know, this really is a crazy state. I'm always on the lookout at stuff that it might be possibly to work into a story. So I'm, I'm following Mark's book in his career. Always like, what do you got? What do you got? You know, and just like in uh, Lake Wales about the little little guy somebody caught in a cage. I had never heard that story before. I was like, oh, we got like leprechauns and gnomes and trolls down here. That's wonderful. Yeah, I, I got to say it's full circle. It's it's That's great. I love it. So. Okay, so Mark, just because nobody listening knows what he's talking about necessarily, what is the book that that's in? Uh, that's in Erie, Florida, my best-selling uh, first book, uh, my first bestseller. Uh, I've been writing like Al for a long time too, and this was the first one to, you know, I did. I I I was working in a bookstore, and I saw, hey, you know what sells a lot? Paranormal books. You know, it also sells a lot. Old Weird Florida, which uh, Charlie Carlson, a friend of both of ours, had written, and he had passed away. And I reached out to his family to make sure I wouldn't be stepping on any toes. And they were like, no, go ahead. You know, we're not, you know. And then I reached out to guys like Al and others to, you know, research some legends. And then that's so that Erie, Florida is the one where these these stories can be found. So and now I've got three more since all all on the bestsellers list. So it's been nice. Nowhere near the top like Al did, but you know, we're there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you guys are on the list, and that's a that's a gigantic feat. So how many um, books are published under your name, Al? Oh, wait a minute. I got a four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, I think. I think I have to say, I, gotta, I haven't really thought about it lately. Let's see. Uh, Crota, Darker Than Night, Evil Whispers, Breed, Eagle Feathers, The Gift, Coyote Rage, uh, Tribal Screams, and I believe that's it. Oh, Shaman Moon. I forgot about that one. Because uh, that was done for tied in with White Wolf's gaming company. Nobody knows it's out there because they took that book and four others and put it in an omnibus edition called The Essential World of Darkness. So I even forget about that one. I got to stop and think. And a wife's going to tell me, oh, you got this one over here. Oh, yeah, I forgot all about it. Oh, wow. So I get in. And then I, I keep reselling Crota over and over again in different formats. That way I don't actually have to do any new work, just sell the same garbage, you know, and make money on it. <laughs> call it garbage but okay <laughs> so um where do you get i you talked a little bit about inspiration but when you were writing like where do you sit and go you know what i'm gonna do it's in a ruins and it's this creature where does it come from well i, I get uh, i belong to the idea of the month club and once a month i get a brown envelope with all these ideas out of uh, pacofsi ohio 
So, you know, I get that. It's like $20 a year. So it's not a bad deal. But no, no I, <laughs> I constantly research. I'm always looking for weird stuff. I read mostly nonfiction. A lot of history stuff, a lot of Native American legends, a lot of folklore, uh, all kinds of occult paranormal books. I'm just constantly on the lookout at something where somebody says something weird happened in such and such place, I can go investigate it. And ghost stories, things like that, you know, haunted places. I've investigated a ton of haunted places and cemeteries. And, and you know, because I love, I love American history, so I'm always reading about American history, and it's fascinating. I mean, you could read about a house set, in, you know, old house from the set in the 1700s. Yes, yeah, like, okay, that's interesting. But when they tell me it's a set in the 17 from the 1700s and this old Civil War captain haunts the place, I was like, now I'm all perked up. I want to see it. You know, see what I can capture on film and idea wise. Do you believe in ghosts? Yes, I've, I've seen them. I worked. Uh, I was a caretaker at a cemetery for eight years. I, I've seen them there, even in daylight. Uh, um, a lot of Native American ceremonies. I've seen stuff there. Uh, my house, uh, I, my house people won't come back in my house. They, they don't. Stuff's here all the time. When we lost our house to Hurricane Jean and they were remodeling it, this guy who was doing the tile floor wanted to work at nighttime. I said, okay. I said, but the spirits are going to mess with you. He's like, I don't believe in ghosts. He's a redneck guy. I said, well, I don't care if you believe in them or not. They believe in you. And they're going to mess with you. So he come in and he worked overnight, but he got chased out at three in the morning. He would never come back in at nighttime. He come in the daytime with his big dog. He was terrified. And him and his friends are, who were all here working said they will never set foot in my house again for what they saw and heard. I said, well, I tried to warn them. I said, somebody's going to mess with them. Play with so, them. So what's in your house? Spirits. Uh, you know, like follow you home to ceremonies. Uh, see, with the Native American culture, we believe when we die, we don't go to some far off place where you can't come back and visit. We believe once you cross over, uh, there is no such thing as death. It's just a spirit assuming a different position. Uh, and we come we come back, our ancestors and our family can come back and visit. I mean, why would you want to go to some place called heaven if you couldn't come back and visit your loved ones? That wouldn't be a reward. That'd be a punishment. So we believe that our, our ancestors and our family come back and, and come back and guides, act as guides, help us out through a tough times, come back and visit. I mean, they want to come back and see how the family's doing like like we would if we would die. I mean, my my mother passed away uh, probably one month ago uh, from COVID type illness. They didn't call it COVID. They said she was negative, but it was all the symptoms. And she died after being exposed to COVID. And the day before her her funeral, I went out in the backyard with a pipe, with a medicine pipe. And I was praying. And during the ceremony, this bright yellow butterfly comes by on wings. And I was laughed out loud. I said, okay. I said, yeah, but mom, that's probably you. But I expected something bigger like a hawk. I didn't expect a butterfly. Well, that afternoon during a thunderstorm, a red-shouldered hawk landed on our fence. During the pouring rain and thunder, now my mother was scared to death of storms, but this hawk sat there on the whole fence, you know, during the storm, which they wouldn't do out in the open. And we were laughing, saying, you know, that's that's my mom, you know, because I said, come back as a hawk. And this hawk's been here ever since. And a couple of days later, it sat in our backyard and had dinner. It sat on a bucket. So we've been seeing it now. It doesn't mean that she's turned into a hawk, but spirits can use animals and birds as a as connection to us, so to get our attention. I was looking for a hawk. A hawk shows up. That's like mom saying, "Hey, see, I'm here. I'm still here. I'm using this." So you notice I came back. You said show up as a hawk. That is awesome. That is very cool. No, totally. I I actually had the opportunity to live in New Mexico for about two years. And we lived on the border of an Indian reservation. It was like a ranch house on the border of an Indian reservation. So I got to be around a lot of that, um, uh, different cultural parts of that and seeing their ceremonies and 
um, seeing their belief system and stuff like that. Like my mom actually ended up learning how to make Kachina dolls from um, an, in, an Indian woman who showed her how to do that in real dream catchers. And I can't tell you how many times I've actually used those real dream catchers, especially with children, to show them how they can empower the dream catcher because yeah. that's what it's it's kind of there for. And, so, and they work. If you use correctly, they work. My son used to not having dreams until we put a dream catcher over his bed. Then he started having dreams. He don't remember having dreams before then. Now, you mentioned Kachinas. I, I used Kachinas in my uh, second novel, uh, Darker Than Night, because when the evil would show up, the Kachinas would turn backwards. And my mother had a big collection. <laughs> my mother had a big collection of Kachinas. And every time I go over to her house, I turn some around backwards just to mess with her. You know, I was like sneaking to get a distractor and turn the kachinas around backwards. So when she's sitting there at three in the morning, looks up, they're all facing the wall like the evil's coming through. I do it just to freak her out. And if she wasn't home, I'd take them down and put them in the middle of the floor in a circle or a little, doing a little ceremony. And she'd come home and see the kachinas like, oh, my son's been here. <laughs> That's awesome. I had to tell, because the Coca Pelli is a kachina that people use all the time. And I'm mm -hmm. like, those are penises on that doll. I don't know what you're doing. Like, do you realize what that is? There's a restaurant locally that has that down on West Bay. And I walked in and I'm like, why did you guys choose this symbol? Well, you know, blah, blah. And I'm like, this is a fertility god. You know, like, <laughs> that's what this is. And anyway, it, I love it. It was people fascinating. Use... Go ahead. It was fascinating researching the Hopis because the Hopi believe that we came from underground, that this is the fourth level. There's three levels below us. And they came up to an opening called a Sipapuni which is why in the Kiva, there's always that opening that's supposed to be a symbol from underground. And people are like, of course, the question is, when they, t they tell this to the children, they'd always say, well, why aren't people still coming up through the hole? They said, oh, well, this fat woman come up, she got stuck, so nobody else can come up. But they have all these wonderful legends about being underground and, and do the Apaches, where they have stories about living with the ant people. So it, it was fascinating with the, the researching this for the books. Uh, I came across a Hopi legend where they're talking about one village attacking another on a flying shield. And I was like, well, back the hell up. This is a 2,000-year-old legend in there on a UFO. But it's in their oral storytelling. Wow. Okay, so we talked about um, spirits and or ghosts or wh whatever term you want to use for those. And the, there's, I know there's all manner of spirits because everyone's there stuck and angry and poltergeist and everything, right? But let's talk about monsters for a moment. Um, do you believe, like, there's so many legends around monsters, right? New Jersey Devil, Chupacabra, all these things. Do you believe in monsters? Uh, yeah, I believe in things that aren't human. I mean, I mean, the Indians believe in it, too. I mean, when they're, they're storytelling, they would have stuff that, you know, they were making up. They would have stuff like, oh, in this lake, there's a water monster. Stay away from it. And it was if it's tribal belief in something like that, yeah, there's something to the legend. But yeah, uh, shapeshifters are big in the in the Indian thing. Of course, you know we Europeans call them werewolves, but the Indians they have you know shapeshifters, skinwalkers. They're, yeah, they're, they're, there's very much monsters. I don't believe in uh, vampires as Belagosi type vampires, but I believe there's something to the legend. And if you go back far enough, in a lot of legend and folklore, there's there's a source. I mean, we in Florida, we have everything from water monsters. Uh, we have uh, Bigfoot. We have Skunk Ape. Uh, we had uh, 
along the St. John's River, they actually found a burial ground of skeletons were eight feet tall that they actually photographed it and they recorded it in the paper back in the day. And the skulls were so big that the guys had put them on in their head as helmets, playing around with them, and they had a double row of teeth. And this was known to the tribes living along the St. John's River at the time. They called them the tall men. So, you know, the scripture, we would say, you know, giants, and they might call monsters. But, yeah, I believe in monsters. I believe there's a lot of things out here we don't know about. And, you know, the deeper you go in the woods as, as mankind pushes civilization farther and farther in the deep woods, we're learning about these things that we didn't believe before. So what is your favorite then? What is your favorite monster legend? Uh, I always, when I was a kid, I was always fascinated with a werewolf. I thought that'd be great as a kid. You get picked on in high school, but once a month, you turn turn a werewolf for a couple of days and just whip ass of the people picking on you for the rest of the month. I always liked the shape-shifting type because I've come across a lot of stories of shape-shifting, not just with wolves and stuff, but shaping, changing into birds and the belief about, you know, somebody turns into a raven or the, the witches could do that. So I've always been fascinated with that type of monster. You know, of course, you know, Bigfoot's been great too. And, uh, you know, it'd be great to be a vampire, live forever and drink blood, but, you know, that's not going to happen. But um, outside of the country, there's some really crazy legends. My wife has a, from the Philippines, and they've got a story of the Aswan. And the Aswan is a vampire. But what makes it cool is that the top part of the body leaves the lower part of the body and flies around with the backbone hanging down. And the tribal people in the Philippines still believe this. They're, they've had sightings recently. They've been terrified to leave their house. And the belief of the, the, the vampires is so strong over there. They'll even close villages if they see one, like they, like like locked down for pandemic. You know, exactly. So it's, uh, well, that's a that crazy That is probably one. a great survival methodology. I mean, there is so much history littered with entire villages disappearing off the face of the earth, like everybody dying. And no good reason why that happened. Just in case anybody listening wants fodder for a story they're going to write and stuff like that. <laughs> you, um, oh, oh my gosh, my next question. Uh, so, you know, you're hearing these legends and it inspires you. So how long does it take you to write a novel? I've done them as quick as four months. I don't want to ever have to do one in four months, but usually about a year, nine months to a year, about average. Uh, when I'm doing a first draft of a novel, I like to do 10 pages a day. Now, they don't have to be good pages. And if I knock those 10 pages out in two hours, I take the rest of the day off. I'll go out and drink beer and play around or whatever I want to do, read books. But if I don't get those 10 pages done, and you know, I got to sit there until they're done. If I got to sit there for 14 hours, I'll sit there for 14 hours. So, it, it, you know, that way you knock at least the first draft out fairly fast. And the first draft doesn't have any of the, the detailed research that goes into the second draft. But yeah, you need about a year to do a book. So when you sit down to type, if you're really going in a clip, how many words per hour can you do? Never counted. I don't know. I mean, you know, it all depends on how it's flowing. If I get enough caffeine in me where my back teeth start hurting, then it's really flowing good. <laughs> we have now met one of the only authors that's never counted his word count. Yeah. I do, the, I do the 10 page rule and I never look. A lot of times I'll sit here with the, the lights off and just uh, the screen on. Sometimes I'll type, close my eyes and type. I just, I never pay attention to the words until I'm to like the second or third draft and I'm starting to count the words, how many go into it. Oh, wow. Well, so are do you are you a plotter, pantser, whatever, plantser? We like talking about it. What do you do? What is your? For, for a novel, I'll take, and I'll take a piece of uh, the page on the computer and I'll do like chapters one through 25. 
And then for each chapter, I'll knock out two or three pages. This is when I'm first doing it. Now, when I'm done, you've got about, you know, 75 pages to 100 pages of, you know, the story down on paper. I've captured a story. From that, to become the, it'll go into the novel. But that also, I'll take those uh, 75 pages and shorten it, and it'll become the outline that I send to the, the publisher. I'll send them a very detailed outline. But I, I warn them that I, I may change stuff before the actual book's finished. I may take a happy ending and make it a tragic ending or kill off a character they're not expecting. I said, this isn't set in stone. But this is the basic story premise. Oh, wow. That's that's a lot of outline. That is a tremendous amount of outline. Way more than I am capable of doing. That would be... Well, a, lot of, a lot of people get stuck in the middle of a book. And by doing that, you've captured it down on paper. So you're not going to get halfway through a book. Because a lot of people who don't outline, they'll get to the middle and they lose it there. By doing this, it keeps you going forward. I mean, just putting something down on paper, forcing your brain to think the idea through. Do you have a story graveyard? Yes. I have a whole filing cabinet full of story graveyards of stuff that, you know, one day I'll pull and try to publish or the wife. Well, what about that story? I said, no, I don't want to, It's not good enough. But yeah, there's, yeah. You, when you write your first novel, you set it in a filing cabinet and don't look at it again. Cause it's not going to be the one that, you know, you sell, you start on your second. The first one, you're getting all the bugs out of your system. That's true. But a whole file cabinet has to be more than one book. Do you, what what makes you like get rid of a story? What makes you put it in the cabinet? Something I didn't like about it, or maybe somebody come out with something similar and it wasn't time for it. There, there's different reasons. I mean, uh, I've got uh, three right now in various shades of working, and I was they're kind of there because I didn't know whether I wanted to do them as a script or as a book, whether they'd work better as a movie or better as a novel. Of course, in novels, you've got to do more research than scripts. I mean, a script, you say a soldier walks across to, you know, the room and you don't have to describe anything. Where a novel, you got to go into the whole details, give a background, et cetera, et cetera. So they're kind of like, they're kind of script form, novel form. I know they're very short. I mean, maybe a couple hundred pages each. But then, you know, if I want to go into details in terms of a novel, it just depends on what I'm comfortable with. I got somebody interested with it. It helps making money on it's the main thing. I mean, if I if I'm not going to sell it, so I'm not going to give it away to somebody. No, that makes sense. If you listen to Jonathan Mayberry, he's all about the dollar bills associated with making money on things. Well, we got to pay the bills. I mean, it's, it's it's better if you can pay the bills doing something you love. I mean, it's much better if I can, if I can write and you know people say, well, I'm going to self publish and you know I'm going to do this, which is great. Self publishing is great. But why don't you try to sell it first? Somebody might buy it. And then if you can't sell it, then self-publish it. You'll still make money, but, you know, it's kind of nice if it's in the, the bookstores when you walk into the front door. I agree 100%. We have to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Okay. This is the voice of Drinking With Authors. You are at our commercial break, and our commercial is, hey, do you want to be a guest on our show? Or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show? Or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of? That would have to stump us. But you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Like now. Done with my drink, I'm babbling. Okay, we're back. Okay, Mark, wow me. All right, so my question for you, Al, is as a horror author, as a, an aficionado of all these things, what scares you? What is your? See, see it. 
the news scares me. I mean, what's going on in America scares the absolute hell out of me. I mean, reality scares me because, you know, I, horror is escape fiction. It gets our mind off it because we're reading it. We know vampires and werewolves, for the most part, aren't real. I mean, we can put the book down and walk away from it. It gets too intense. Uh, when you're looking at reality, you're looking at tornadoes and earthquakes and riots and people burning stuff. And just uh, America, it looks like it's falling apart. It terrifies me. I mean, I, I love this country to watch people who sh are, I know are decent people just going at each other's throats. I mean, good Lord, this year we've had a pandemic followed by, you know, marching, followed by rioting, followed by what I'm afraid what's going to happen in November. I mean, if once either side loses, they're going to be mad. So it's, it's going to get worse. I mean, this is a country we've always been, we the people, we've always pulled together as a society and to watch everybody fighting each other now. That's that's what scares me. That gets me too. So, okay. So, all right. So that, yeah, that just gave me chills. All okay, right. I was about to say, don't, don't ask that line of questioning anymore, Mark. No, Mark, no, no one's dead, no one's dead, no one's dead pile over here. Okay. So uh, you've, you've been a caretaker at a cemetery. You've been a writer for screenplays. Uh, you've been a writer for books. Uh, and now uh, you've also written one of my favorite comics in recent years. So tell me how that came about. Uh, they had uh, DC Entertainment had a program that was a, a writer's workshop for new talent development. They would take uh, pick eight people, I believe, for the workshop. And it was a 13-week course. And they would teach you how to do comics. They wanted to develop new talent for DC. So I put in an application and I was one of the lucky people selected. So we got, it was once a week on the computer, a Zoom type meeting, a Scott Snyder who writes Batman taught the course. And at the end of it, we got to write a comic and I chose Poison Ivy because everybody looked at her as a villain. Poison Ivy is supposed to be a villain, but she's caring about plants that don't like people. I know people like that. I've said, no, she's, she's a medicine person. I mean, so I, I know women who tend to their garden every day with their plants and that's what gives them power and they don't associate with people either. So I, I looked at poison ivy from that aspect more as a medicine person. And I w put her in a, basically a horror comic. I took her, put her up against a Babylonian shape-shifting essence vampire. And it, it was a lot of fun. Unfortunately, I, I didn't continue with uh, with Poison Ivy because right after that, DC had a shakeup where people are changing jobs and editors are changing and they moved Mad Magazine to the West Coast and shut it down. And there's been like three different shakeups in DC since then. So it's kind of, I'm not sending them anything because I don't know what's going on with the company. So <laughs> waiting for the smoke to clear. So I was, I, I love that issue so much. And I was like, man, that I was so hoping that was going to lead to a series or something about it because it was so well done. So. Give well, me the opportunity. I would love to do something with Poison Ivy, but I wanted—I want a solo thing. I don't want her to be Harley Quinn's sidekick because Poison Ivy is a very intelligent woman. I mean, she has this, you know, unique talent that none of the other superheroes have because she has this whole touch with nature. I said, I want to send her out on the road. I want, you know, and in that comic, I, I connected her with Kudzu. And I kind of did the, the false impression that she was there for the children because I had little children's missing posters. And she didn't really care about the kids as much as she cared about somebody hurting the plants. It was it was very well done. So, so all right, Erica, back to you. Back to me. <laughs> okay. I, I actually agree with you. You know, it's interesting about a lot of um, – I'm a huge comic book fan, too, a huge comic book nerd. And I always like it when they um, – 
when you get solo and solo different stories about some of the characters because a lot of them they throw in you know to um enhance and even harley quinn for instance who's gotten a lot of notoriety at this point was a side character in a video game like she wasn't like a a big deal and then they they kind of went oh she's a big deal and I like it when they can stand on their own. That's one of my favorite things about a lot of the comics. My favorite comic is actually called Lady Death. I don't know if you guys yeah. have ever heard of it. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. And it's because she's quite a broken person, but she stands on her own, and she's pretty amazingly kick-ass. And then the other amazing character in that is another strong female lead. You know? And all the guys, even Satan, who's in that, is not very powerful. Not a very powerful dude in those comics. And I, I think that's really awesome. But let's talk about publishing for a moment. Um, you just, right before the break, you talked about uh, self-publishing versus traditional publishing. So are you only traditionally published? I did self-publishing once uh, and, uh, for the collection Tribal Screams. My wife said I had a bunch of short stories that had been in anthologies that were out of print. She said, you need to bring these together for your readers. And so I sat there and I did. I didn't have any on disk. So I had to sit there and retype every story. And I self-published it through 48-hour books. But I, I'm not a big person of promoting myself. I just didn't wasn't comfortable with it. It's like the books were sitting here and I uh, wasn't doing much with them. So when Independent Legion's publishing came along and wanted to renew Crota, I said, well, I've got this collection here that I'm not doing anything. Would you like to bring it out? And so I, they brought it out. And I was much more comfortable with somebody else bringing it out and doing the advertisement because I'm, I'm not the best in promoting myself. So that was the all, my only venture into self-publishing was at one time. And I only did like 200 copies of the book. So do you, and that makes sense. And I think, you know, you kind of hit on the point and we talk about this a lot in the podcast is you have to, part of your job, if you're going to be a self-published author, or even depending a traditionally published author, because if you're one of the people the publishing company really cares about, it's very different than if you're very far down on their list, right? Because they do some promotion, but they don't go out of their way, is that it becomes having to be a business person. You have to do your marketing and all of that stuff to get your name really out there, right? You also have to know what awards to apply for, because the awards don't necessarily just show up on your door. So, so you've gotten a lot of awards, right? You've even gotten a Lifetime Achievement Award, didn't you, from StokerCon? Uh, so, uh, from the, the Horror Writers Association. So it's the HWA Lifetime Achievement Award. It's uh, the same trophy as the Bram Stoker Award. looks identical. It just says Lifetime Achievement. Now, that, that came as a complete surprise. I didn't even realize it was eligible because you have to be writing for 30 years, and you have to uh, be like 60 years of age or older. And when I got the email saying I had won, I thought it was a joke. I was, you know, I'm sitting here and my wife got upset me like, what the F, what the F, this can't be real. And I'm reading it several times. And I'm not, my brain just kind of shut off. It's like, I couldn't understand what it was seeing. It's like, there's no way. And it was like the presentation of it. I'm looking at the address, return address, thinking it's a joke, thinking somebody's spoofing me. I'm like, this is real? I said, you know, why? <laughs> but yeah, it came as a complete surprise. And I, I I didn't, there was a committee who voted on me. And I I guess I owe a lot of people money for voting for me or something. You know, <laughs> I guess I get the bill later. So I have no clue why I got it. But I guess because they give it to the old guy. So we just go off and die in a corner somewhere. I doubt that's the, <laughs> the impetus behind that award. What about the other awards? Like the other awards you've won for your book, did you put it up or did it just happen to? How did that come about? 
Uh, HWA, you know, I, I just put them out there. I mean, uh, like for, for, I won this year for uh, best novel for the Bram Stoker Award for Coyote Rage. And, you know, the, you can send the copies if people want to read them. I mean, but you don't really campaign for the award. I mean, uh, it's HWA members are voting for it, what they think. And I guess enough people re- got the book and enjoyed it. They gave me a vote and I had more votes than the other people. But you, you really don't. Vote. Put them out for an award. You don't say, well, this is this. I'm trying to get this award. It's uh like with the Nebula, I was uh, nominated for best short story. And that's from the members of science fiction and fantasy writers of America. And they're all my peers, basically. And they vote for stuff that they see, they read, they give it a nod. But you don't really, it's it's not like one of those companies that say, oh, we got these awards. We, we want to put your stuff up for it. Because, you know, you just, your stuff's published, is out there. People are reading it. If they like it, they'll give it a recommendation. If it makes the preliminary list, people vote on it, and then it makes the final list. Or they take the four finalists and vote again for the top billing. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of like you don't really do much with it. If, you know, if people want to read it, then the publisher would send them a PDF or something during the voting stage. But you don't really kind of put your book out there for an award. They just select it. People vote for what they want. And that's a perfect ad for writers for uh, joining membership associations. Like uh, Horror Writers has been amazing for me, too. That was one of the first ones that helped push uh, Eerie uh, early on, even though it's not really horror. It's folklore and all that. But a lot of the horror authors were into it because it was all these spooky stories that they could use for inspiration. So they shared it around a lot. And that was one of what got us picked up a lot of places, you know, where my publisher hadn't really ever broken that market at all. So, uh, so yeah, horror writer, horror writers America is great. Yeah, because you can't really campaign for the awards because if you do, that's going to kill you forever getting one. Because uh, a lot of writers will take offense, especially if you're new, about people who campaign. It's not allowed. There's all kinds of rules with HWA and CIFWA about not campaigning, about not approaching people, not sending your stuff out to them. Uh, you have to ask in a certain way if they're even interested in looking at your stuff during voting time. But there's all kinds of rules. So yeah, campaigning is a bad thing, especially for those awards. You not only will you not get them, but they'll they won't like you anymore. Yeah, you you won't get invited to any anthology after that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you turn a lot of anthologies down or request to write down? Where? How does that go for you? Because you hit a certain point and people go, "Hey, give me a recommendation" or that kind of stuff. Do you encounter that a lot? Well, I. I just did recently did several stories and poems for for anthologies uh usually it's a matter of time if i'm if i'm tied up with a novel or something for years i turned down a lot of short stories i just when i started started off in the novels i quit doing short stories despite the name going back when i went from short stories to kids books to novels i never backed up to do what i was doing before and with the novels i was focused on those and now I've, I did a couple of short stories, and I'm like, well, this is kind of fun. I haven't done these in years, so I just I got two coming out. So now I want to do a couple more. But yeah, usually times is a lot of times it's invitations, but it's like if I got time, and it's like if I got time, how much is the pay? How how hard do I have to work? I'm the laziest writer in the world. I mean, so that, <laughs> those are all considerations. Sorry, it's true. Sorry. You know, it really no, is. That, uh, you know, uh, a lot of us have our, our Harlan Ellison story. We were, I was talking with uh, a couple other authors recently, uh, Jody Lynn Nye and Bill Fawcett, who uh, on, an, uh, on another show, and they were awesome. And they were all talking about their Harlan Ellison story. And that's the one we talk about is like how, when he came to me and I was sitting down and some guy came up to me and asked me if I would write something for him, uh, you know, tonight. And then Harlan Ellison just steps in front of me and goes to that guy. He goes, how much are you paying him for it? You're asking this professional writer to write this thing. 
how much are you paying him for it before this goes any further before he says yes before he says no how much is his time worth to you and i was and at that point that was like oh my god that's the professional writer mentality you gotta have that yep. and it's like and that's you can't just oh i'll just write this for a friend or whatever but that was reminding me just of that right there so harlan was at uh, the screenwriters expo in california we, i was out there too with him and we were walking through the lobby, and all these people were lined up. And he goes, Al, what are those people for? I said, oh, they, that's the pitch thing. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, they pay $20 to pitch, and they get to pitch their idea to the movie house, the studio. And there's like 1,000 people in line. And he's like, are you kidding me? I go, no, that's what it is. So Harlan gets his chair and stands up on a chair and starts screaming. He goes, are you out of your fucking minds? He <laughs> says, you're giving your story ideas to Hollywood without a paper trail. They're going to rip you off. Stop that. Harlan's screaming at these people. He's like, because he knows Hollywood. He said, you do not give your ideas away. 100%. 100%. Yeah, so true. So let's talk a little bit about screenwriting, because you do screenwriting. What I, I've is, done what? it. I've, I've done commercials. I've done uh, PSAs. I, I've done some bigger stuff. I came really close to having a movie deal with George Romero, who I love dearly. And we were... we. Pitching it, we had a conference call with one of the big studios in Hollywood. It took five months to set the conference call up, and George wanted to do uh, Evil Whispers as as his next project. He based on the book. I wrote the screenplay, wrote the first draft, and five months we finally get everybody on the phone together because everybody's traveling. And George says, "Look, I want to do it for five million dollars. I can just next thing." And then this producer in this five months time hadn't read the script. I mean, five months he hadn't read it. So he goes, well, look, I need to the weekend to read it. I'll call you on Monday. So the guy calls on Tuesday. He said, look, I haven't read it yet. Let me have another week. Well, during that week, the writer's strike hit in Hollywood. Could not talk to George, could not talk to anybody. I was not a member of the Writers Guild, but he said, if you talk to anybody, break the rules during this strike, you'll never be a member of the Writers Guild. So Romero's on the list, couldn't talk to him. So the, the producer basically screwed everything up. And during that time, George's... Uh, Diary of the Dead came out and premiered at the Toronto Film Festival. Huge hit. Weinstein Brothers snapped it up for distribution and wanted a sequel. And so that killed my deal. George said, look, I got to do this other zombie picture. So my deal was shot. So, you know, came very close several times having big movies. I've, I just had another one for Breed and we were going to shoot it in Puerto Rico. Well, they called me back a year later. So we'll call you, you know, we're gonna, uh, set in St. Augustine, but we can film it in Puerto Rico to got the investors out of Puerto Rico. Be easy to do. Well, during the fall that year, the hurricane hit Puerto Rico and tore it up. So they're like, oh, we haven't called you. Actually, I mean, yeah, no, Puerto Rico basically doesn't exist anymore. So I killed that deal. So I've had like the worst luck. In fact, somebody said my, my middle name should be just my luck because I, I, I have just my luck. <laughs> now, are so you, doing, you still um, doing something with Creep Show? Do Go I, ahead, Mark. Do you still have a story? You still have a story going out with Creep Show this this next season? Uh, no, <laughs> no. It's the rumors news to me because I know some of the guys working on Creep Show, but I don't have a story with. I'd love to do something for them because I know uh, Mike Broom's doing something for that does a lot of the artwork for him. Mike was the one who did the cover for Tribal Screams for both yeah. the coffee and the book, and I would love to work with Greg Nicotero, but it just hasn't happened yet. Okay. So maybe I, if we I, get all really good writers, I'll get down to us mid-list guys, and I'll get something going with them. No, so that's a whole genre. I do. I do have written um, uh, plays and some small screenplays and stuff like that's a whole other medium to write. But it's a very interesting one because people think publishing is hard. Screenwriting is a whole. It's not the writing of it. It's the whole 
getting it in the hands of anybody kind of situation. And then that whole thing, people don't realize it's a lot like publishing in that there's hoops and jumps and sometimes who you know and you know, sometimes who's the hands it gets into and then do you, is it your baby or do they want to take your baby and make it into a completely different baby? And like, there's a, a lot of interesting stuff. Um, oh, it's, it's a nightmare. Uh, I used to, when I first started trying to do screenplays, I would send a letter to a Hollywood agent just saying, would you be interested in seeing something? And they would send the FedEx letter back to me unopened overnight, spend like $25 to send it to me, along with a note saying, we don't read unsolicited material. All it was was an introduction letter. It wasn't a story, but they would send it back. So I would laugh because they spent like thirty dollars sending it back to me FedEx and overnight, and they never opened the letter. But it's a strange, strange business out there. Oh my gosh, I agree. Okay, let's talk a little bit about your publishing and things like editors. Let's talk about editors for a moment. They can be our best <laughs> friends in the entire world. So, what is your process with the editing? Well, uh. Yeah, editors are your, your best friend, even though they can drive you mad. I've had some really great editors, and I appreciate everything they've done for me. I've never really had any bad editors. I've had some bad agents, but never bad editors. Uh, all the ones, uh, you know, they send you back, you send in the manuscript, especially with a the novel. They send you back the list of changes. I'll throw it across the room and get mad, stomp and kick for about three or four days, and then pick it up and realize they're right, and sit down and start doing what they want changed. Because they're always looking at the fresh eye. They they want the project to succeed as much as I do. So they really are your best friends. And you can't have be a good writer without a good editor. I agree. And I think a lot of people, especially young writers, don't realize what the actual job of an editor is and how to tell the difference between a good editor and a bad editor. You know? It, it, you, you get that. It's like getting that re first rejection letter. You're like, oh, my gosh. I can't believe, you know, that the, the, all these red marks, it's like when you get the, in class, you used to get those, you know, you'd like, I know I aced this. Why is this wrong? And then, and then you look at it a little further and you go, oh, okay, yeah, I did. I screwed that up. I screwed that up. And, you know, I, I used the word the way too much right off the bat, <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, th those are my favorite editors when they really get into it and you know they're loving the story as much as you because they're also changing the changes they're suggesting our story or minor story edits. And you're like, perfect. That's exactly, I didn't even think of that. That's perfect. Those are, those are the best editors. Yeah. Some will make the, you know, it depends on like some of the editors want huge changes, but usually about this time I've already got the contract with the book company. So I kind of got to put up with a lot of the stuff, but uh, you know, some of the editors are like, Oh, we want you to change the story. Instead of having it here, have it over there, change this, don't have it. When they do too many changes, you got to say, you got to argue with them and say, look, you know, I know this and this and this works. I had a person fussed uh, with breed wanted to, you know, fussing about it being in St. Augustine and they were wanting to change stuff. And they were thinking new Orleans. I kept, I finally told them, I said, look, this isn't new Orleans. This is St. Augustine. This is a very small ed area. And, you know, they, they wanted to buy the book, but they want all these massive changes. So I told my editor, my agent, I said, well, send him a nice letter and tell him thanks, but no thanks. We'll take it somewhere else. They wanted the massive changes because the lady didn't know what she was talking about. She'd never been the area I had set the story in. And that's that's where you go with the, the, the bad editor, the bad situation is that I actually had somebody who was on the podcast talked about she sent a story in. And the editor started changing a bunch of stuff. And it, and it turned out it was because it was a trigger for the editor. What happened in the story was a trigger for that editor. And so she was taking out all the trigger stuff from the story. Wow. 
Um, yeah, and you go, okay, can I have that back pretty please? Yeah. And, you know, if you if you have that situation, you you have to back away. I don't care what the situation is. Just take it and walk away because otherwise it's not going to be your book anymore. Exactly. Well, you got to watch it now today, too, when we're in the, the day of self-publishing, which a lot of people are self-publishing anthologies or becoming editors. I'm seeing a lot of people who are editors who have never sold any writing, never been writers, or who are teaching writing and never have sold any writing. And they're bringing in books on how to write. And I'm looking at this and like, you don't, you've never done any writing. How can you teach it? Or how can you be an editor if you've never done anything? So you always check their backgrounds too. Make sure they actually know what they're talking about. I mean, you know, because there are a lot of people out there who are just messing the writers up left and right. It's like the people who teach writing in colleges and in junior colleges who they teach because they can't write. And so they're telling people, wonderful writers, that they'll never be successful who go on to become successful. But that was that person's opinion. And they don't have, they've never sold anything. They don't know the publishing industry. Yeah, no, I, there's a, a gentleman who's in Orlando, and um, I'm going to be honest, he was on the podcast, not going to say his name, even regardless of how much gin I've had. But one of the things, he was on my podcast, and he is teaches writing and has a podcast about writing, too. And when I asked him, he had one book out, and I'm like, okay, well, when's your next book coming up? One book. He was an older gentleman, had been doing this for a very long time, and had one book out. Yep. And I was like, okay, when's your next book coming out? He's like, yeah, I don't know. And the whole thing struck me. I was like sitting there going, wait a minute. How can you be this <laughs> talk about this thing if you can't actually produce anything? Like you can't, uh, how do you give advice at all? Like how do you grade people? How do you do any of that if you can't actually produce work? And I can understand that, like your schedule is just so crazy, but you were working on it and you had a timeline. But with a, oh, I don't know when it will. I just, uh, I don't know if I'm comfortable. And I'm like, you're not a writer, dude. You're not a writer. I'm sorry. You managed to publish one book, but you're not a writer. Yep. You know, 